Welcome to Empowering Women Through Sports. This is exciting. March is Women's History Month. This month recognizes the contributions and achievements women have made over the course of American history in a variety of fields. In celebration of this month, this episode of Empowering Women Through Sports is with Phaedra Knight. Phaedra is very multidimensional, as we'll hear. She is a gifted athlete. She was on the women's U.S. national rugby team from 1999 to 2017, going to three World Cups and earning many awards, which we'll cover. And she's getting into MMA fighting, mixed martial arts, so she's super tough. Phaedra went to undergrad at Alabama State University, then went on to earn her law degree at the University of Wisconsin Law School. So she's highly intelligent. Phaedra just recently launched her clothing line, PSK Collective, so she's driven in business. And she is the president of the Women's Sports Foundation, and their work strives for equity and helps communities get girls active, so she has a heart of gold. All of these achievements, she says, are much in part due to her sports career. We'll pick up the conversation here, talking about the Women's Sports Foundation. How appropriate. March is Women's History Month. Yeah, perfect time and big month. And it, it all starts, I guess, with the foundation, Women's First Foundation. You start kicking things up, you know, in February. It feels like we have a couple of months to focus on on women and women women's accomplishments and inspirational figures, girls, etc. So it's always a really good time of the year, uh, February and March. Always, yeah. always. I look forward to touching on that a little bit. Would love to start though by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up and what sports you played in, in your childhood? Sure. Um, I grew up in a small town, a, a, a small farm to put it exactly, just outside of Irwinton, Georgia. And that's a small town located in, in the heart of Georgia. And um, I grew up being a, a farm girl, my sister and I, my, uh, had to work every summer. We worked on the farm. Um, we we didn't. I don't think we had a, a a life like most kids. And so, we grew up only knowing work, um, you know, and uh, just a, a very disciplined lifestyle. Uh, I I was an athlete. And as I am still, but it was, I guess I've always been an athlete. So any spare time I had when I wasn't, you know, gathering vegetables or helping my dad with livestock around the farm, I was playing basketball or playing football with my next door neighbor. So a pretty fulfilling, never a dull moment life on the farm, for sure. And that work ethic was your parents instilling that in you? Yeah, you know, they, they, I guess they were very calculated, very, very smart folks. Um, they wanted, they both grew up on a farms and they really recognized the importance of hard work and independence. And they wanted to instill those values in us. And so they wanted to raise us in that sort of environment. You know, my dad, you know, did other things. Both parents were college educated, but one thing, I guess, they they tied their core back to was this farm and the and the hard work that was required and 
you know, all the great things, I guess, that came from that. That's what we knew and that's what we did. And it's incredible how uh, that hard work and on the farm has sort of transcended those days and now, you know, has, has, has really been a, an in, integral part in, you know, my accomplishments, my success, my work ethic. And I think my, you know, my sister, you know, could probably certainly testify, you know, the same um, for her. So really important. What a wonderful foundation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Any other mentor in your life for your sports? Was there a mentor in your life? You know, I grew up in an era where, and in a, in a place, we didn't have access to cable. So, uh, you know, we had the basic ABC, NBC, CBS, and then PBS, four channels on the television. And so, you know, Saturdays and Sundays, I spent time watching watching basketball. So the, the people I saw, you know, especially on the pro level, um, and particularly in, in, in basketball, were, 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 you know, were men. You were the Magic Johnsons and the um, James Worthies, uh, you know, and Michael Jordan later. But, you know, during sort of those very crucial developmental years, those were the folks I saw. The only female athletes I saw on television were like uh, Flojo, right? Um, Jackie Joyner Kersey, mm-hmm. track and field. Um, you know, Zena Garris, and I'm, I'm specifically noting um, African-American. Uh, um, you had Zena Garrison on the tennis side. You had Martina Navratilova, um, Billie Jean King at that point. I didn't see it. She wasn't as visible during that time when I was growing up, in like the, the middle 80s or early middle 80s. But, uh, you know, so I didn't see a lot of women, but I guess all of those people, they were certainly uh, mentors in their own right for me. Um, but I think my uncle, my uncle Erwin Knight, called him, we call him Lafayette, his middle name is Lafayette, so we call him Uncle Lafayette. He was, a, he was a lover. He loves basketball. He was a coach for several years. And he would play basketball with me. He would take the time almost, almost every day. And, you know, we'd do some sort of skill. At a cer- up to a certain point, I didn't have a basketball goal until my dad put one up um, at the end of one of our produce fields. Uh, but my uncle would play with me and he was always, you know, again, he was probably my first, I guess you could say he was my first basketball coach. I mean, we're talking about, you know, I was probably around the age of four and five and he was out there working with me and playing with me. Um, yeah, so it it was really cool. So I guess if I had to, to pinpoint, um, a sports mentor that was very immediate to me, it was certainly him in terms of, um, mentors outside of sports, you know, I mean, I I have to say uh, my parents, right. My mom, especially she was, you know, and still is like, still the woman's incredible, you know, especially growing up, she was just such a hard worker. You know, I, I would watch her literally like she'd be in, we'd be in the kitchen and, and I, I'm such a weird, I guess I'm very weird and I was a weird kid, but I'd sit there and watch my mom wash dishes because I was so enamored with the, the veins in her arms. It, to me, it like spoke of hard work and diligence and, and, and there was just something um, very real and um, I don't know, it, it's, it, it, it was alluring to me to see her 
And I watched her, you know, I watched her because I wanted to, to do things like her and to be like her and to be that strong. Um, and so, you know, she was a mentor to me absolutely by example, the way she lived and lives her life. And, 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 you know, she's someone who, I don't know, just like without getting too deep into it, just her ability to forgive, you know, in situations that I couldn't even imagine and to endure in situations that I don't think I would have is, is beyond me. Um, and so she, she is a mentor for life and in life in every aspect, because if I can carry over all of the qualities that she's exemplified over the course of her life into all of the things that I am doing, I am sure to be a champion. Wow. What a tribute. Yeah, certainly my mom. And then one more person, you know, my dad, of course, like he was such a jack of all trades and he has such a, you know, he still does, but he had such a free spirit and and would take chances, even if it meant, you know, he wasn't, he was going to fail. It didn't stop him. And I, I, you know, that's something that was huge for me, but my grandfather, Dorsey Knight was incredible in the, in the way that he regarded me. Um, I spent a lot of time with him. It, you know, he would babysit me, right? Basically, when I was probably from the age of three until I was five. And we spent a lot of time going fishing, um, a lot of time, you know, just driving around in his truck, pickup truck and, you know, uh, picking up cans and things like that, things that folks do in the country. But the one thing about my grandfather, Dorsey, is that he believed in me as, just as a matter of fact. And when he introduced me to the people he knew, he would always introduce me as Faye, his granddaughter who can do anything, his granddaughter who can drive a tractor, you know, who can wrestle pigs, who goes (laughs) to the pig sale, like all of these things, like where where other kids I think would have been so, so ashamed, like, I don't want people to know I go to a pig sale. You know, I actually was proud of it, right? Because of how he presented it. I mean, he would like just place it on a platter and and line it up as one of the finest things in the world. And so that gave me, I think, just it, it was just, again, he said it as such a matter of fact. There was no question for me that and there was no way I would doubt that I could ever not do anything. And so, you know, those are those are people I had great family um, members that inspired me and mentored me and in ways, you know, that, that there's absolutely invaluable. Yeah. Again, the foundation of those family members, did they Mm -hmm. notice your physical talent, your natural gifted athleticism? You know, I think they did. I I started playing basketball, you know, obviously as, as a very young kid, but as in a more organized fashion. And, you know, I was such a hard worker on the, on the court. I was definitely termed a, called a, a hustler. Um, you know, I was always stealing the ball and things like that. And they noticed that. They took note of that. Um, and at certain at a certain point, they recognized that I would I would have probably a couple of options to go to college. They wanted me to go on an academic scholarship, which you know I don't think at any point they doubted I would be able to get because I I was always a good student. But then, you know, during high school, I think they started to recognize that the opportunity for athletic scholarships were on, were on the horizon as well. And so I think it gave them 
quite a bit of peace of mind to know that my my education, my undergrad at least, would be taken care of and I would have some options. I wouldn't be strapped, you know, because of the financial, our financial state. And so they did recognize it and they actually, they, they really support it. My dad couldn't make it to all of my games, but my mom was at, I think maybe one game during my entire high school and middle school career that she didn't make, but she came to every game home and away to support. And so. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And so what position did you play? Well, how tall are you? Oh, I just got, I just got measured the other day. I am five, four and a half. So I'm going to claim that half. Um, Nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're not you're not uh, playing center forward or anything. No, 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 no. I was point guard. I was point guard, true and uh, true, true to heart, and uh, playmaker. Yeah, yeah playmaker. I, I I definitely made things happen on the court, and was oftentimes quite physical, which you know it was foreshadowing where I would go and what I would be doing many years later. But uh, definitely a physical player, and, and and I fouled out of many games because of that that physical nature. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, my next question is how did basketball translate into rugby? I mean, basketball is very physical. I mean, you've got refs and they're watching for fouls. It's a, it's a really rough sport, but rugby is a collision sport. It's a full on tackle. So is this a cross between a few sports? How, what is it about rugby that you love so much going from Uh. basketball to this full on tackle sport. Yeah. So, you know, I I was actually training um, to walk on to the Wisconsin Badgers basketball team um, in, in 97 when I, so I was in good shape, uh, in good basketball shape that is. And um, I met a woman who played rugby at a law school party. And I know the story, everybody, anybody that knows me knows the story invited me to a rugby training. And then, so I went out and that was pretty much all she wrote, but it's funny you ask that, you know, rugby uh, evolved from soccer um, and both American football and basketball evolved from the sport of rugby. And so I think basketball is a bit more analogous to rugby because in both of those sports, you're, you're basically looking for space to score. Um, basketball, you're constantly trying to evade an opponent who's in front of you to get to the the goal. Uh, same for rugby. And so it, basketball translated to rugby quite well. There were obviously some nuances in the rugby game that weren't so natural, um, you know, passing backwards, passing lateral, as opposed to passing forward. But the, the, the idea of space and evasion um, and even defense, um, up to a certain degree, were very similar. Obviously, in rugby, you t- tackle. You don't do that in basketball. But the idea of, of defending and, and how you defend and, and sort of shepherd players in, in rugby is similar to, to what you do in basketball, like in a trap. So it, there were many things that translated you know, and transferred quite well over into rugby. I did not know that rugby precursor to basketball. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. James A. Naismith clearly was watching, uh, <laughs> watching some rugby matches when he got the inspiration to create the, uh, the shortened and, and smaller version on the hardwood. So 
Yeah. Huh. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, team sport, rugby, and your it's very physical, yet there's a lot of camaraderie with rugby. Yeah. Now, what yeah. is it about that that community and that culture of rugby that is, is creates such a deep camaraderie? You know, I think it's a tribal thing, much like uh, with martial arts and, and what I'm finding with martial arts now that I've turned the page to that chapter of my life. It's tribal. It, you, you go out on the pitch and you, you I mean, for 80 minutes and 15s um, and for, for basically 15 minutes or 14 minutes and sevens, you go out with your teammates and you basically go to combat, right? You go to war. You're out there, you're tackling other people, you're, you have to support your teammate, you have to be there for them. Um, when they get into a situation where they're being tackled, it's up to you as a support player to preserve possession of that ball um, at any cost, obviously within the rules. And, and it, it's hard. It's just hard. You know, I don't care how much you condition for a rugby match. You, you know, you're, you can always, always push yourself harder there's not these breaks like you get in football right and so you're in this collision sport where you're out there just you know banging each other up so you go to a very dark place sometimes not in a bad way necessarily but it's a you know you're talking about developing an anaerobic threshold that's like like lactic acid hell right and so if you can endure that kind of discomfort um and the people around you will do the same basically to help you advance and, and vice versa, there's, there's no other way. There's no other thing you can do except really like them. Right. And really respect them. And I think that's the thing about rugby. Um, it, it's, it's such a tribal, it's such a tribal sport. And it, it, it's, again, it, it, you have to have a, a certain level of aggression to play rugby that that's I think exceeds most sports. Um, if you fall into that category where you, you know, you can get out there and, and really kind of uh, chop it up with people in the rugby pitch, it, it you're special. And, and, and not necessarily in a, in a, I don't want to say in a superior way, but you're, there's a special, there's something special about you. And so that special element basically binds the people that play the sport, you know, and then the, the other piece of it is after a match, which is, this is a tradition of the sport. You shake hands with your opponent and you go and you fellowship with your opponent. And that creates an even deeper bond because not only are you going to battle with people that, you know, in, in that moment on the pitch that you absolutely hate, you go and you fellowship with them. And, you know, it's that opportunity to kind of fall in love with them again. And that creates deep bonds, too. And so with your opponent, your fellowship, meaning what you go have a beer with them or have some snacks or absolutely have. Yeah, have a meal. And then, you know, in many cases, especially, you know, at the grassroots level, like you play club rugby against another club. And if you're a higher level player, you will end up playing on some sort of all star team with those people you're playing against. So, you know, conceivably your opponent this weekend could be your teammate next weekend. Um, and so when you have those sorts of uh, the relationships um, that you have to kind of go back and forth on, it, it just, it creates a respect 
And that's what I think fosters that camaraderie you know you have in the sport. Everybody that plays a sport will tell you you meet a person who plays rugby anywhere in the world or you know as a part of the game, you've got a friend for life, you've got a, a place to stay for life, right? You have a place to put your head. And I don't think you can say that about most other sports, right? Just because someone plays basketball, you meet someone across the country or across the globe that plays basketball, you're not necessarily going to invite that person into your home to stay. But in, in rugby, it's different. It's just different. And I think the other piece, and I'm sorry to keep going on and on, but the I values, the values of the game, right? De, you know, the values that are inherently a part of, of, of play on that pitch, you know, certainly transfer over into life. And I think if you are of a certain caliber and integrity um, that, that you engage into this in the sport, it says quite a bit about you as a person. It doesn't mean everybody's like that, but most people that play the game are like that. And so it, it's, it creates a very uh, family-like feeling. The uncommon community builds sure. a deeper connection. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. Great. Well, what about injuries? Okay, we're talking full tackle. So as a player, were you ever concerned about getting injured or concussions? Or how about hurting others? I guess when I was playing, I wasn't concerned with it, right? I I was never really concerned. I knew that it was was an occupational hazard, um, that it could happen, that it did happen to me. But I never thought for a moment, I think I got my first injury. I started playing rugby in 97. I got my first injury, which was a really significant one in 1998, dislocated my ankle and fractured it. And, you oh. know, at the time it was so bad because I, I was in Canada. I had to come back to the U.S., get surgery. And it, there was just so much swelling and damage to the ankle that, you know, the doctor at the time told me I, I may, you know, struggle with running. Needless to say, you know, rugby, playing rugby was probably a, a, a done deal for me. Um, at no point did I listen to that, right? I knew that I had an opportunity because at that point I had, you know, the U.S. coaching staff had their eyes on me to play on the U.S. team. And so that's all I was, that's the only thing I was focused on was getting healthy, getting back on the pitch to play, you know, and every time, like, I think that was my first injury, but I had other injuries. Uh, Fortunately, I didn't have anything so catastrophic. You know, I like I, I recall going on tour and, and I was in a, a collision with a player in Scotland and I ended up cracking my orbital and splitting my eyelid. And oh, I ended up, yeah, it was pretty crazy. And I, it was so funny because um, Dr. Bartoli, who's our team doctor, is a very good friend of mine, exceptional team doctor, orthopedist. But she um, <laughs> She asked me where I was on the pitch and I'm like sitting on, the, I'm, I'm laying down. Actually, I couldn't see, I was in this collision. I couldn't see out of my right eye. And so she's like, Hey, open your eye, open your eye. So I opened it and she's like, Ugh. she's like, ah, where's your eyeball? Oh. And I'm like, ah, I hope it's there. Doc. <laughs> oh my. So anyway, we, we found my eyeball. It was in the socket. It was, it was in place. Um, but you're you so know, lucky. Yeah, I didn't. We didn't know. Well, is, is the orbital cracked? We don't know. Took me out of the game. Clearly, I was done. Um, and then I later on that night, I sneezed, 
and my eye blew up, ballooned like, a, I don't know, like a blowfish. It was ridiculous. It was like a blowfish. So oh. literally I had in glasses and I sneezed and the, the, my, my eyelid was touching my glasses. You know, we were talking about an inch, about an inch of, of inflammation. So that is or, so or, gross. Air, or air, right. It was awful. <laughs> it was awful. So we were going to Ireland the next day to play. And so she and I, we spent the whole day the next day at the, at the hospital, you know, had to have surgery, had to have the eyelid repaired and, you know, but it, it turned out to, to be a really cool tour. I was able to be in a, a role that I could help support the team, you know, in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. And so I didn't fixate on the injury, right? I fixated on how I could serve my team. It actually, it brought me out of probably my selfish tendencies by getting that injury. And I think all the injuries I've had, I've, it's given me perspective, hasn't made me fearful of playing or, you know, but it's given me perspective. And of course, you know, there have been times that I have hurt other players and it obviously it was not, there was no intent there. The intent was to, you know, play hard and to, you know, be effective, but the end result, wasn't necessarily what I was looking for and what they were looking for, you know, and that didn't feel good. It never feels good when you're, you know, when you, when you tackle someone or, or even someone tackles you and they get hurt in the process. Like, again, these are, these are hazards of the game. We all know that when we sign up for it, we all also, you know, have a responsibility to learn how to technically tackle correctly, you know, technically be tackled correct. You know, there, there are so many different skills to learn. And so um, you, you, you do it, you learn it and, and you play. And when you get to a place where you are fearful of injuries and it's probably time to, to not play tackle rugby anymore and, and probably retire to maybe flag or touch rugby because, you know, you can't play in fear, right? You can't play in fear. So I've had, you know, I've had a couple of injuries. If you could see my hands, you know, I have a right, my pinky on my right hand. Um, you know, it, it's sort of perpendicular <laughs> to the rest of my fingers. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, those are just cosmetic, if you ask me. So. <laughs> Yeah. So if you give someone the finger, they, they have to choose like, wait, what's she doing? Yeah, probably, I could probably give them my pinky and then the, they would, yeah, they would probably find that offensive, although it's not because of the direction it points, it probably seem offensive. So, yeah. Oh boy. Wow. Well, yeah, it's obvious. Yeah. It's obvious that you have grit and determination and hearing about your upbringing on the farm. This is, you know, a lot of your foundation. You have accomplished so many high-level goals in your life. You were on the women's U.S. national team for 20 years, almost, right? Yeah, 18. 18 years. You were in three women's rugby World Cups, and you won all world team honors in two of those. Yeah. And then you won player of the decade in 2010. And you were inducted into the World Rugby Hall of Fame which yeah. did I read this correctly that you're the only African-American to do so? Yeah. The only African-American in the world rugby hall of fame and only the second American. I was second to um, the great Patty Jervie who uh, was in that first class of women that was inducted. She was one of the first women that was inducted into the world rugby hall of fame a few years ago. So yeah, it's currently, we are the only two we're hoping and, I anticipate there are going to be some some more Americans um, 
you know, added to that roster. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm in fine company though with Patty. That's for sure. Wow. That is so impressive. Yeah. I guess the follow-up question to that is, I mean, what motivates you? And I think it's going back to your childhood and, and your wonderful parents and, and experiences that you had that created yeah, that foundation. You know, I was born, I think with this, this gene to just be successful, to be a light, to be an inspiration and, and, and to use every bit of life that I have to always move forward, move the needle. And, um, you know, it, what helped was having, like I said, you said the parents who, who provided an environment where I could flourish and create this, this awesome work ethic. And also, you know, like I said, my grand, a grandfather who, you know, he was just always, he spoke of things, uh, accomplishments and achievements as being like pinnacle in life. And, you know, how people, that should be the main goal in life. And so I didn't know anything else. And I, you know, that's all that now developed as a part of who I am and what I do. And so, um, yeah, I, I'm always trying to find ways to reinvent myself to make Phaedra as good as Phaedra can be so that I can serve others in some way, shape or form and just be the best that I can be in what I'm doing. Oh, that's beautiful. The Women's Sports Foundation, you are president. And when I'm reading into this, so we have the Women's Sports Foundation, which advocates for and it funds and it educates and promotes women and girls through sports. Women's Sports Foundation was founded by Billie Jean King. Now, I've name dropped her a few times in my podcast series because of her lifelong mission for women's equality in sports. And she's just simply a hero. She is. Um, and she's and she's a very like warm and funny woman. She's just fun to be around. It's not, it doesn't just it's not all like serious business. It's you know you can have a laugh or two. She's just funny, which makes her that much more enjoyable. Well, I can only imagine, and I'm one degree away from her knowing you now <laughs> and the two other women that I've been talking to, and I just can't wait to meet her. Um, yep. So how did? I mean, you're president, you're like president of this major foundation. How did your sports and education and business career help you in attaining such a high leadership role? Well, you know, I was, I have a very, I guess you could say it's a long history with the foundation. Um, I've been involved with them um, for over 23 years now. I started out as an advocacy intern under Donna Lopiano, who was at the time the the executive director of the foundation. I had absolutely no idea where it would lead. I didn't even know what the foundation was when someone introduced it to me. My my big sibling in law school, Gabriella Valio, she came to me one day and she said, what are you doing this summer? This was at the end of my first year of law school, or I was probably midway through my first year. And I'm like, I have no idea. You know, she's like, why don't you apply for this internship? It's at the Women's Sports Foundation founded by Billie Jean King. You should check it out. I think it's right up your alley. And so I did. I applied for the internship and I got it. And I packed up my car um, after the you know spring semester of, uh, at that point, it was 97. And I drove from Wisconsin to New York City or New York, rather. I was, it was actually it was the, the office was located out on Long Island. So I drove out 
And I started interning for this place. You know, I had no idea what they did. I knew, I, I don't even know if I really knew what Title IX was. Yeah. And then just my time and involvement I, in all things evolved, right? I went from doing an internship to coming back and volunteering. So I was a volunteer for their gala um, in 97. And then I went on to become an athlete ambassador once I, you know, started moving up the ranks in rugby. I reconnected with the late Yolanda Jackson, who was over athletic. Basically, she oversaw the athletes and the foundation brought me in as an athlete ambassador. And I just continued to do work for them. I, I, I loved what they did. I love what they do. You know, I love the staff that just it, it gave me an opportunity to really mature and realize how important it is and how important it was for me to fight for the rights of others um, and to take on causes that impact, you know, the lives of other people deeply. And so, you know, that was sort of my evolution into this role as president. I went from an intern to a volunteer to an athlete ambassador and to, a, you know, a member of the athlete advisor panel, advisory panel, board of trustees, and then president. And so it's been wonderful. And in my experiences, you know, like I said, in, as an entrepreneur, um, as, as a lawyer at one point, as, as a, an athlete, have all sort of come together. Um, and, and those experiences sort of, or I don't know, they, this role uh, certainly benefits and it benefits me having had all that experience in, in those other roles. So it's a perfect sort of culmination of those things. Well, you know, it's yeah. nothing like being in the trenches and then leading. You've been there, you've seen it, you really know the foundation yeah. of the whole foundation. Right. <laughs> so you can, right. uh, you can oversee it. You, you understand every moving part, not just yeah. coming in as leader. Yeah. Well, on the womensportsfoundation.org website, it says, we are the ally, advocate, and catalyst for tomorrow's leaders. We exist to enable girls and women to reach their potential in sport and life. What are some examples of how the Women's Sports Foundation is doing this? Oh, my God. There's so many things that the foundation does. I'll start with just in terms of the support that they provide for girls and women in sports. It's no secret that the foundation has positively shaped the lives of millions of youth, high school, and collegiate student athletes, also elite athletes and coaches, right? So it's not just athletes. They've expanded that umbrella to include coaches, um, you know, and all this work has been done through, you know, research, through advocacy, through community impact programs. And through all their partnerships, and I say I should say our partnerships, there's so much research out there. And the foundation are leaders in examining the impact of physical activity and sport on girls and women, and the gaps in, in access and opportunity, uh, gender equity and strategies to boost engagement. All of this stuff is evidence-based data, and it's used widely among sports, among governmental and community-based organizations to shape policies and practice. On the advocacy side, uh, the foundation is a valiant protector of Title IX and the policies that advance equity, safety, and access. And so we, we are her advocate. That is what we're here for. There's 
tons of programs, community impact programs that empower parents, coaches, and community leaders and administrators with tools to really increase girls' athletic participation and positivity or and positively impact the world. And then the partnerships from the partnerships that are forged with the elite athlete ambassadors to the corporate partners like uh, Athleta, NBC, NBC Sports, and other like-minded organizations and supporters, we are here to, to maximize innovation, engagement, and impact. You know, when I talk about those programs, one in particular, there are a couple in particular, we've got the Sports for Life initiative, which was designed to create access and opportunity to girls of color. And it's reached 162 community organizations in 32 states with over $1.9 million in grants, reaching over 60,000 girls in over 50 sports. And then you've got Go Girl Go. Yeah, Go Girl Go is it's provided curriculum to more than 15,000 girls serving organizations, reaching over a million girls and distributing more than $6.3 million in grants. And then one that I actually was a recipient of, the Travel and Training Fund, it has awarded more than $1.8 million in grants to more than 1,400 athletes and teams. So that's just the start of it. That's just mind boggling. Right, right. And how many years to get those type of stats? How many years did that take? Well, I mean, the foundation was founded in 74, right? So all of these, you started as an advocacy organization and you started layering on the research, the programs, the partnerships. But think about that. Founded in 1974. That's what we're approaching 50 years. And we're still serving and getting stronger and stronger. And and even in a year of a pandemic, the organization is strong. It's been supported because of what it's done, because of its roots, its legacy. And we just continue to serve. It's funny. We, we, we just celebrated the 35th anniversary of National Girls and Women in Sports Day. Um, and that day is, is set aside to celebrate and advocate for girls and women in sports. The fact that we had a pandemic and we couldn't go out, we normally go to to D.C. And, and there are there are celebrations all over the country, first of all. But there's a core group of us that always go down to Washington, D.C. And we have a program. We go and we lobby on Capitol Hill with legislators. Um, but it, we didn't stop short of that this year. We just had to do it differently. And so we had our first ever Girls Fest, which was a virtual celebration. I co-hosted with the esteemed ESPN and WNBA analyst LaChina Robinson and young and very promising journalist Pepper Persley, you know, and it attracted uh, thousands, right? Thousands of viewers. It was such a success. Um, but these are, again, these are other ways that we are able to reach these young elementary, high school, and even college-age kids during a time, you know, that our country and our world is is suffering from a pandemic. So it, we won't stop. We, we, we will find a way to reach and have impact and serve. Yeah, I saw that virtual event and was, you know, that pepper, adorable. Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. What a, what a little pistol. Right. Yeah. She's so much, uh, so much personality. Yeah. And then um, I posted a podcast on national girls and women in sports day 
because, you know, shoot, this podcast is called Empowering Women Through Sports. And um, my daughter co-hosted with me. And so she interviewed me. She's 16. That was awesome. So awesome. Yeah, Yeah. that's so great. If you haven't listened to any of the podcasts left, pro surfer Mary Osborne's on there on one of the episodes. And she went to the Women's Sports Foundation Gala. Yep. She talked about that. And then Stacy Margolin Potter, tennis player, played at the time of Tracy Austin, Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova. And she's featured on episode six of the podcast series. And she reached out to me and she said, I went to that gala too. So That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you touched on girls in sports and equity and inclusion and kind of unpacking this whole thing because it is such a big topic and it's it's coming to light and people are actually doing things about it, especially in the outdoor industry. Uh, it's trying very hard to diversify. And, uh, you know, I recognize that I come from a place of privilege and opportunity and I've had access to sports throughout my life, but that isn't the case for many girls. How does the Women's Sports Foundation promote diversity, equity, and inclusion? Uh, you know, in many of the ways that I just mentioned, you know, the Sports for Life program, um, Go Girl Go, that Sports for Life program was actually co-created with WSF national partner ESPNW. And this program is designed specifically to serve, like I said, girls of color, right? Um, we, uh, to repeat, we positively impacted 60,000 girls and we're counting, you know, saying go girl, go. Um, and I guess we had an event uh, around Title IX, the Title IX anniversary last June called Girls of Color and Title IX, an unfulfilled promise. And that was featuring, I think you mentioned LaChina Robinson. She was, she moderated that, but you had Billie Jean King, Candace Parker, Dawn Staley, uh, head coach of uh, University of South Carolina, uh, Nina Chaudhry, who is the general counsel at Senior Advisor for Education at National Women's Law Center, and Sarah Axelson, who's a senior director of advocacy at the Women's Sports Foundation. So this was a, a remarkable event. You had all of these just trailblazers and these, you know, the the panel of folks who um, just had a powerful conversation. And so that was, you know, again, during the pandemic, we had to find ways to reach people and still make an impact. Um, One of the things as a one of my goals as president this year that I'm in in this uh, capacity is to commence a sustainable and meaningful relationship between the foundation and the historically black colleges and universities community. Um, and we actually, we're having a meeting uh, at athlete advisory panel sometime next week to start discussing how we're going to, you know, how we're going to lay the foundation uh, for building this relationship. But I think it's so important that we explore and, and really take advantage of bringing uh, other people, diversity, diverse groups, un- or marginalized groups and people into the circle. And so these, these are certainly ways that we plan on doing that and we will continue to, to do that. That's great. You know, Phaedra, you, you check the boxes of major DEI touch points, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, you are female, you are African-American and 
you are you have a wife, right? A, uh, a partner. You have yes. a partner. So, yes, yes. and you've achieved these major accomplishments from your college and law degree to rugby awards, being on the board of trustees now, president, and running a clothing company, which we'll get to in a second. Sure. Um, but I mean, having just one diversity hurdle is hard. What challenges do you face? Did you face or are you facing? What perceptions and barriers did you have to get through to achieve your goals? You know, as much as I, I, it's easy to say that the challenges that other people presented to me um, were tough. It was, I think it was the things that I had to deal with within myself that posed the most challenge for me. You know, growing up in a, in the Bible Belt, in a very religious family, um, you know, and not really seeing people who were like me right, uh, really resulted in a, a later maturation of, of Phaedra Knight. And, and, and as, as it concerns my sex, you know, my sexual orientation, uh, especially, you know, gr- again, growing up in the South and in an area that was very you know, racially charged um, wasn't easy, you know, and there were opportunities, you know, that I felt that I should have had access to or um, that I didn't. And I didn't because I was, I was black. I was not, I didn't have the skin color that allowed me to have that privilege. I think at some point, right, there are levels, there are, there are levels of privilege. And I know at this point in my life, I've had some level of privilege. Certainly there are others that have had greater levels of privilege, but you know, in, relative to the situation, I think we all kind of have our challenges. And so I had to reconcile within myself that I will control and, and dictate where I go. I, I will not allow someone else to do that. And so regardless of, yeah, there's racism. I've experienced it. Um, there's discrimination. I've experienced it. Uh, there's homophobia. I've experienced it. And uh, there's sexism obviously. Right. Um, and so all of those boxes, it's really, you don't really know which one someone's playing on when you have three of them. It's like, uh, it's a joke that I've, I've used when I've given speeches before, but it's like, yep, I'm a black gay woman. I, I, I hit every limb coming down that, that tree. Um, and so <laughs> it's, it's just, um, take your pick, you know, and, and what you, how you want to, you know, discriminate, you know, against me. But at the end of the day, I think that there's a common bond amongst human beings. And if we can get beyond that, right, if I know that I'm a person of integrity, I know that I can connect, I know I'm a good person, and I can connect with the good in every person in this world. And, you know, we all have different sides of us, right? And so if I can make that connection, all the other things just don't matter. They don't matter. And over time, um, and eventually things will work out the way they're meant to. At least that's how I have to look at life in order to have peace. And so, yeah, it's been it's been tough, you know, um, but it's, I also recognize that there are other people that it's been really tough for. And that's not a, an excuse or reason to not go out there and conquer. And so I welcome adversity now. There was a time that I felt like it was, it was a pain and it was just a pain. Now, 
the initial interaction with it, the initial contact with it is, is like, ah, but then I know now, okay, I know where this has gotten me in the past. When, when someone told me I could never be um, a flanker for the U.S. national team, what did I do? I went out there and I proved them wrong. Every time I'm presented with a situation and someone says no, I take it and I turn it around. And so I welcome those things now. I welcome them and turn those, I guess you could say, turn lemons into lemonade. I know it's cliche, uh, cheesy and all of those things, but it's the truth. It's taking that situation and, and making it a positive. Sure. And taking the experiences that you, you can actually show others the path forward as well. Right. Which do you think of these diverse attributes are the hardest to get acceptance from people? Oh, I think it depends on the situation, right? I think if I'm walking into, say, uh, a, a media a media outlet, I think the first thing they're going to notice is that I'm Black, right? They won't know that I'm, I mean, they may assume that I'm gay, but not necessarily, but they, I, there's no way I'm going to hide the color of my skin. So I think in those situations, that is the first thing. I think once you're, once I'm in there, then it becomes about my sex, right? I'm female. And so I think the, the biggest thing really anywhere, anytime I walk into the door, one of the first things people will notice is that I'm black. So I think that's the first checkbox. And then it's, I'm a woman and then it's, I'm gay. So yeah, that's been my experience. So then to get through these barriers, you prove yourself with your abilities and capabilities because that's what should define a person. You know, well, either that or I don't, or I don't go away. Right. If they have clearly, there's some situations and I don't get into it now, but where I have been, you know, told that I wasn't good enough when I knew I was good enough, when I knew I brought every single quality that that role required and more when I brought a bit of charisma, but I didn't necessarily look like everyone else there. Um, and I was told I wasn't good enough. And so it's like, okay, I, I will be courteous with you and I will maintain this relationship. Um, but at some point, either you're going to be out of this role or there's going to be a change. Something's going to happen. If I am persistent and if I'm resilient and if I can refuse to go away, there's going to be a crack and I'm going to break through. And so it doesn't always happen, but if I can stick around, you know, and that happens one out of 10 times, it's worth it. One out of 10 times I break through, then I'm going to stick around. And um, that's been my tactic and strategy. I don't know what other people have done, but resilience and and, and staying in there is is huge. So that's what sports teach us, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, getting back to some of the girls' sports and kind of promulgating the whole sports for younger girls, there are so many sports in this world and the level of equipment and facilities needed vary for each. And now, is there a sport that has the best return on investment for a community in terms of- Are you really asking me this? Are you really asking me this question? (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. Soccer field, soccer You know what I'm going to say. You know, no, why would you get a running ball when you can get a rugby ball? Oh, (laughs) 
Oh boy. <laughs> I just failed. I <laughs> know it's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, soccer ball. I mean, there are sports. You you walk around, let's say New York City, and you have these these recreational fields that are free to the public, um, soccer fields. You know, kids have access. If they can bring a ball, whether it's a, a soccer ball or a rugby ball, and gather a group, they can play sport. They can engage and they don't have to have a, you know, a, a, a massive uh, bank account to sign up for membership at a Chelsea Piers or anything else. You know, it, it, you don't need it. If you're in the boondocks of, of Georgia and, and you come across a, a high school football field that's open or even just a grassy area, which you find tons of in, in Georgia, you know, you have and, and you can get a ball. And, and you don't have to play soccer with a soccer ball. This is what they did with the creation of rugby. They took a soccer ball and they started running with it instead of kicking it. You know, one small piece of equipment. You can even use, I mean, if you have to, you can use a shoe, right? It doesn't, it's something. <laughs> right. But it's all about the creativity, right? So there are sports, right, running. Yeah, all you need is really, if you're on grass, you don't even need shoes. You know, if you're on good grass, you can run barefoot. You know, there are things, there are no limitations. You can do things that are free. We get so caught up on formalities and, and equipment and all of that. But listen, if you have to use a shoe or uh, I think uh, Martha, Martha said she, when she was a kid, they, she had like a, I don't know, like a paper, uh, like taped together to create a soccer ball. Like, and look at her now, right? Sidebar note here on Marta. Marta Vieira da Silva is a professional Brazilian soccer player. She's considered the greatest female soccer player of all time. So you don't need much. It just start with what you have. And if you do that and you absolutely do the best that you can with that, something more will come to you. It will come your way. It's inevitable. And now we're in the era of, of YouTube and the internet. So you have access to free videos. I'm a mixed martial artist now. I'm actually training for my first MMA fight, which is supposed to take place April 17th. And I go to this academy in New York City, and it's great. I have incredible coaches. Um, but for those folks and those kids that maybe don't have access to that, you can start with just videos on YouTube. Grab your little brother. Grab your little sister. You know, grab your friend across the street, you know, and start watching these videos. You don't need much. You can go outside on the grass, bring your cell phone and do this stuff. Basketball, right? You don't need a, you know, you can create a basketball, you can create a basketball goal out of an old, uh, what do we use? We used to use um, tire rims, nail them to like a piece of plywood. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, this is it. I did this before I had a basketball goal put up. My dad put up a basketball and a proper basketball goal in the, the end of the yard. You know, I created, we created my, our own. So we took a, a tire rim and um, nailed it to the side of the house. I mean, That's and awesome. that was it. And it worked. And right. we didn't care. 
Right. You know, so it's all about the imagination and, and, and taking the initiative to do it, to not wait for someone to bring it to you. But well, it comes out to do it. Yeah. Well, inspiration and community then, which I really yeah. see the Women's Sports Foundation being at the heart of really. Right. Getting right. Getting them all together, exactly. getting the inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Fantastic. I would love to transition now into, let's see, well, the Women's Sports Foundation is a beneficiary partner of PSK Collective. So working backwards, what is PSK Collective? I hear that (sighs) started a clothing line. (laughs) I did. I did. Um, You know, I was inspired by not only my rugby career, um, but just my experiences growing up and I feel like I've always had a muscular or athletic body and I was never able I remember having to go in the stores um, and try on clothes and I absolutely hated it um, because of that experience as a kid I didn't fit certain sizes I couldn't nothing fit you know it was if it fit my it fit my waist um, you know I couldn't get my legs in it if it fit my legs it was way too big in the waist. And so I had these constant challenges. Um, I could never find, you know, I just didn't have this traditional uh, female body. And so I oftentimes had to resort to semi-custom and custom clothing. And um, I took that. I talked to other athletes, male and female, who experienced that same, that same turmoil. And um, I thought, oh, I can couple this with my passion for social justice and create this line. I met, you know, a woman, Zara Bahari, who's now my business partner. She, she's the CEO of the Powell Company's Real. So we decided after, you know, meeting and talking just once that we were aligned and we wanted to kick this thing off. And so we launched the PSK Collective. Um, and, you know, it's an active and streetwear fusion line primarily the design for the Gen Z female, but certainly, certainly we, we welcome everyone to wear our clothes because we think everyone can find some way to connect um, with them. But uh, yeah, we, we kicked off the PSK collective. We launched during the pandemic during the, in the heart of the pandemic when, when most people were not doing that kind of thing and just kind of took a chance and yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Well, that's, I mean, yes, during the pandemic is one challenge, but also there are so many athletic apparel brands out there and it's not easy starting up an apparel line, period. What differentiates the PSK Collective from other established brands? Well, we we are sustainably sourced. Um, we're inclusive. So when you take a look at just our team of our, our staff, right? Let's start with our staff, the, work day in and day out to make this happen so diverse come from totally different backgrounds different races different sexual orientations etc you take a look at our roster of athlete ambassadors much the same they're different sizes different shapes different colors they rock different sports they have different styles across the board and they ultimately attract different types of people to the brand and so, you know, you, you can have a, you know, I guess my mom's a, a 74-year-old 
um, woman. She's, I, I could, I will not call her elderly because she's in no way elderly, you know, rocking the PSK collective along, you know, side my little cousin who's a Gen Zer who's rocking the PSK collective. And so, you know, it's something again that serves everyone. I think the big kicker is that we are rooted in giving back. It's a fundamental part of our business model um, is to give back. And at least 15% at this point, 15% of um, our profits. And we partnered with the Women's Sports Foundation uh, because I couldn't think of a, a better organization to, to kick this off with. And I, I foresee us continuing our relationship to partner with the foundation indefinitely. But we also want to add other organizations as we grow, as our sales climb, um, and as the pot gets bigger so that we can help other organizations and, and invest in the things that they're doing around social justice. And so I think that's really what makes us stand apart. Again, we, we made a commitment that no matter what, no matter what our profits are, 15% of that always, always go to the cause. You know, I think we stand apart in that way. We also, we just make really comfortable, awesome clothes. Our marquee item is the rugby jersey. This is our thing. Like PSK Collective will bear this rugby jersey as our key item. And so uh, you'll always be able to purchase a rugby jersey. I know that you know they were popular back in the 80s. I remember I had a Coca-Cola rugby jersey back in the day. And then they kind of fell off. We couldn't find them. And then Ralph Lauren brought them back, I think, in the early 2000s or 2010-ish. Um, and then they went away. And so you never have to worry about finding a rugby jersey anymore. Like it's a part of our every season. Um, it's, it's just a part of our entree and what we offer. So there are a few things that differentiate us. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, little sidebar story about Patagonia. That's where I'd worked almost 22 years up until recently. And one of the first products that Yvonne Chouinard the owner of the company, one of the first products that he and his climbing friends decided that they needed was a rugby shirt because of its durability. They could flip up the collar and wrap the sling of their climbing gear underneath their, their collar and not abrade their skin. And then the fabric was so durable that when they're you know using their arms and the cracks and trying to get up a mountain, that the rock wasn't abrading their skin because the fabric was so durable. That was one of the oh, first wow. products that Patagonia yeah. made. They're so durable. And so that's durable. that's the those are the traditional jerseys. I mean, if they're certainly not the technical jerseys that teams wear now, at least national, you know, high level teams, but that old school jersey, it's heavy, it's durable, it's a great item, right? It's a great staple to have in your closet. Yeah, it can be a sweatshirt, it can be a anything. I love it. So Production and distribution are very challenging with a startup line. Where is PSK Collective made? And is it in stores or where can people find it? Yeah, so we we sourced a number of different manufacturers to work with. So we have some very ethically uh, ethical manufacturers in China. Um, we work with folks here in the good old USA as well. And... Um, I'm delighted to say that we launched 
um, on walmart.com a little little over a month ago. Um, And um, that initial launch collection on walmart.com consists of about 42 trend-focused pieces, um, merging sportswear with streetwear. Uh, you know, and if anyone's interested, the retail price points range from $39 to $69 and sizes range from extra small to 3XL, which also feeds into that inclusivity. We want everyone to feel they can find something there. We also uh, have a partnership with Lids. And so you, you want to go get your PSK collective hat, custom or semi-custom cap or hat made drop into your local lid store and uh check us out so yeah we we came out pretty i think we came out pretty strong considering it's a pandemic and a new brand fantastic i mean walmart i mean that's huge it's huge so we had a an event back in june of 2020 um it was a pre-launch event we invited a number of different retailers um, from Walmart to Target to Neiman Marcus, Bloomingdale's. I mean, there was, I think, some 40 different retailers that showed up for that pre- our pre-launch event. And so many of them showed interest. Um, Walmart was one of them. And so from there, we you know, started the conversation. And boom, February, we, we started uh, offering our product in there on, online. So... It has been a pretty awesome um, relationship thus far. Well, that can be, yes, absolutely. It can also bring its own level of stress due to, okay, now (laughs) you have to produce this much more and you only plan for this much, you know? Right, right. But those are the kind of, those are the kind of headaches we want, right? (laughs) Those are the challenges that we want. Absolutely. So we can, we can deal with that. Tell me, uh, where'd you get your name, PSK Collective? I know that your initials, um, <laughs> Phaedra Knight, but I don't. Is the S your middle name then? Yeah, it is. It is. PSK, you know, is, is a smaller part of of who we are. The collective piece is really what's important. That's the meat and potatoes behind this brand is the collective that we have this collective of athletes, but we are a collective everyone that's a part of this brand, which includes the consumers out there is a part of this collective. And we're, you know, we're all here again to advance um, and uh, the empowerment, the inspiration and the unleashing of, of the inner athlete and every young woman, you know, to give them confidence, inspiring fashion and pieces that speak to optimism, independence, and most of all achievement. And so, you know, that collective is, is, is all, is, is everything. That's wonderful. It's just, you just encapsulated everything so perfectly there. That, that, awesome. that is empowering, right? Yeah. yeah. Are there That's any right. messages or anything you'd like to share with listeners? Anything we haven't touched on? I mean, I just absolutely oh, love yeah. everything we talked about was we covered so much. Yeah, it's, uh, other than just go up, go to Walmart, check out the PSK Collective, um, you know, and, and we're going to be adding items to it. But just keep your eyes open for more. And then, you know, stay attuned. Check out womensportsfoundation.org. See what we're doing, all the great things, how you can get involved. Just, just very happy to dialogue with you today. Yeah, just 
let's just keep fighting and pushing the needle for change until every person, everyone, whether you're black, white, transgender, it uh, doesn't matter. You have equal rights, right? Uh, equity. That's what it's all about for me. That's sort of how I would, the, my motto for the rest of my life is to fight for that. Everyone deserves equality and equity. And until we get there, we have so much work to do. And so support causes that feed into that, that messaging, that feed into that fight. That's how we will all really prosper. There's enough of a pie out there for everyone to really, really have a piece of it and as much as they want. And um, we just have to trust in that. There is good in humanity. We just, we just have to really let ourselves get to that place, get back to that place, go forward to that place, wherever, whatever direction we need to go. Let's go. Let's get there. Amen. (laughs) Fantastic. And by supporting PSK Collective, it supports the Women's Sports Foundation. And that's right. Supports women's sports and girls and high five. Well done. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Okay. You take care. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. Well, to sum it up, I'm enlightened. Phaedra Knight is an inspiration. Her sports achievements are stellar and commendable and certainly offer a basis of strength. What's really admirable is Phaedra's unwavering quest to be the best Phaedra can be so that she can serve others. Her perseverance in fighting for equality and equity for women in sports. And Phaedra's story underlines the importance of family as a bedrock to encourage creativity through life. And that's empowering. Music for this podcast is created and produced by Gary Ferguson. Creative consultants, Tony Ferguson and Quinn Ferguson. You can find a library of episodes and other information on the web at empoweringwomenthroughsports.com. We're on Instagram too at EWTSpod. Or find us on your favorite listening platform like Apple Podcast or Spotify. If you hear an inspiring episode, share it with your friends and let's grow our community of empowering women through sports. Thanks for listening.